If any chapters in the book of Isaiah could be said to typify Isaiah's prophetic style, it's these, Isaiah chapters 22 to 30. We'll be covering them today. This is the lesson you've been waiting for. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome back to our podcast. So glad to have you with us for lesson number 37, Thou Hast Done Wonderful Things. This is the lesson that covers chapters 23 through 30 of Isaiah. But before we get into that, uh, first of all, please contact the show if you'd like. You're welcome to ask questions, bring up concerns that you've had with past lessons, or something that you see coming up in the next few weeks by emailing us at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the wonderful general conference we had last weekend. Uh, it was obviously a truly historic weekend for, for all of us. And of course, the most notable thing would be what happened right at the beginning, which was, uh, for me anyway, which was President Nelson coming out and saying, um, it's time to shift our focus from a church-centered learning process to a home-centered learning process. And uh, I was very touched by that because this is the same process that I've undergone as I, as I began the, what, what for me was the journey of beginning the podcast that, w- that we're listening to now. Um, what I wanted was to have a way of studying the scriptures more intimately and more in depth and doing it at home. And I think, uh, I, I don't know if, if, all of my listeners will feel this way, but uh, it's this podcast has been for me a way of having a home-centered church and home-centered church-supported uh, system of studying the gospel. So many other wonderful things mentioned, um, and of course during Elder Cook's talk as well, he talked about a home-centered church-supported balanced effort. But he also talked about the progress that we can make from reading the scriptures to studying the scriptures. And we're reaching beyond a classroom to an individual heart and home. So um, in keeping with Elder Cook's challenge to make our home a place of spiritual strength, uh, and what he said about the fact that it would be completely appropriate for young single adults or single adults or single parent families or part member families to gather in groups outside the normal Sunday worship services to enjoy gospel sociality, study together. And in my view, that's what we're doing. So I invite all of you, if you have a way that this podcast can better serve your needs with a with a view to those challenges from our leaders, then I hope to hear from you. Please email in and say, hey, I'd like to see you talk more about this, or I'd like you to offer your podcast in a different way. I don't know exactly what it might look like, but I hope to make the content that we have here available to you as you strive to adapt to what all of us will make the church become over the next several months to several years. But I hope that, like me, many of you will see what we do here, the the study that we make of the scriptures, the extra effort that we put into learning about our Sunday school lessons as already having responded to 
our prophet and apostles challenge to have a more balanced effort, a more home-centered church-supported effort, something that we do on our own to take our own personal and spiritual and scriptural progress, uh, take responsibility for those things. Well, what better lesson to begin with uh, than this lesson number 37? There, there is no more quintessential lesson of Isaiah. These are this, in this lesson, every chapter is Isaiah talking about his own people and the latter days. Uh, and again, I'm going to bring up the special episode that we had a few weeks ago, which is the six antecedents of Isaiah. So I hope that if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, you'll go back and listen to it. But quickly, I'll review them. For those who haven't listened to it yet, the antecedent means the noun that a pronoun refers to. So sometimes Isaiah says, I or me or you, and we don't know exactly what the antecedent to that pronoun is. So my own theory, my own interpretation, my own method of understanding Isaiah is is to have a set of antecedents ready to plug in, and whatever set fits, that's the one that you use to take meaning from. And obviously the first set is Isaiah's own time. So when he says, I went out, he's talking about he himself. And I talked to the king, or I talked to him, etc. He's talking about the people of his own time, the nation of Israel that he's surrounded with. That's the first antecedent. It's the surface level. It's the level that exists in every, uh, in every writing you'll ever find. Every writing has a surface level. Second antecedent is the history of the nation of Israel. So Israel as a people, they've been through a lot of very clearly identifiable events, including the exodus, uh, the the time when they were enslaved in Egypt, they ha- they were exiled in Babylon, they were destroyed by the Assyrians and scattered. They rejected the Christ. These are these are events in Israel's history. So that's the second antecedent. The third antecedent is Jesus Christ, the life of Christ and his pre-mortal and post-mortal ministries. That's the third antecedent. Fourth is what I call the plan of salvation or our eternal progression. So um, we lived before we came to earth. We were born. We learn on earth under the this veil of darkness or forgetfulness. Then after we die, we, we hear we receive teachings and ordinances after we die. We're resurrected. And eventually we live with with God in heaven. So that's our eternal progression. It's very interesting how all of these different sets of antecedents, they line up. And if you were to put them all in a bunch of, um, and I'm, gonna, I'm about to date myself, but if you if you put them all in a bunch of transparencies and, and place them on an overhead projector, you could start to overlay them and see how they match up. The same is true for the temple, the fifth antecedent. The, the rooms of the ancient tabernacle in the desert have a similar progression to this to what the history of what nation of Israel went through the the path that Jesus led us on and the eternal progression that all of our souls make so all of these things have very strong correlation with each other and with the writings of Isaiah so those are the first five antecedents the final antecedent is the one Nephi referred to when he said we should liken the scriptures to ourselves now i've already talked about our own eternal progression but when I say liken it to ourselves, this is what I call our daily walk, which is our walk through the world, our walk with faith, with Jesus Christ. We can apply each scripture to our daily walk and 
take something useful from it that we can use to make decisions and to bring the Spirit into our lives each and every day, and especially each and every week. Our life generally follows a pattern of weeks and not days, so we we can have a spiritual dip in the middle of the week and a spiritual high as we partake of the sacrament and, and go to church. So those are the six antecedents of Isaiah. I explain them in more detail in our special episode. What I'm going to do now is take each of these chapters, go through them quickly, and we're going to talk about how you can apply the antecedents in each one. So if you teach your, if you're planning on teach your, teaching your own lesson in a different way, then you'll have to adapt what I'm about to do because this is the way that I would teach it. I would have already exposed my students to the ideas of the six antecedents of Isaiah. And then I would say, here's how you can understand these chapters. These cha- and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a little time talking at the beginning about how I personally study the book of Isaiah. As I mentioned before, Isaiah, if you were to think of it as a dessert, and let's say, like me, your favorite dessert is ice cream. Ice cream, you can eat a lot of it. It tastes very good, but um, it's not super rich. Well, if the scriptures to you are like ice cream, let's say the Book of Mormon, you can you can read several chapters in a day and you feel like you're gaining a lot from it. You're feeling the spirit with each chapter. That is not what the book of Isaiah is like. You have to think of the book of Isaiah as the richest cheesecake you've ever had. So you get one little forkful of that cheesecake and you're going to be you're going to be dissolving that bite in your mouth for quite some time. The point is, you shouldn't be in a hurry to understand and get through the book of Isaiah. A lot of times people get disappointed when they get to the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon because they think, I should be keeping the same pace reading these chapters as I did with the chapters before and after. If you have that expectation, you probably won't enjoy them. But if you're able to change that expectation and think, okay, I've now reached a point where I'm going to take longer with each of these chapters, but it's going to be, but each verse, each chapter is so much more enjoyable because the meaning is that much more dense, then perhaps you'll enjoy it even more. I'm going to teach you how to do that, but you have to be willing to take that extra time. Now, um, when here's a here are some of the resources that I use. First of all, there is a um, a podcast and a, and a YouTube channel that I've referred to before called The Bible Project. It's a website also, thebibleproject.com. But you can go onto YouTube and search for Bible Project Isaiah or Bible Project Joel, and you can learn, get what you can get what you might call a 30,000-foot view of any book of the Bible. And they, I, I believe they have a it's it's an animated lecture. It's kind of like where you see somebody writing on a whiteboard while someone else is talking. Um, and I don't know if they have every book of the Bible done, but they do have most. And Isaiah's on there. They're actually, Isaiah's broken up into two videos, and it helps you get the main idea, a 30,000-foot view of each book of the Bible. The book of Isaiah is very complicated, but each couple of chapters is They explain what's going on in each section of the book of Isaiah. Um, What we're going to do, what we do, we we take the book of Isaiah over several hours. So over five different weeks, over several lessons, we talk an hour at a time. This is more like a helicopter over the trees. We're we're traveling quickly, but we are getting a closer view. But where you gain the most 
benefit is from walking the ground yourself. And that is by reading and studying these chapters on your own individually. So what I try to do as we do our little helicopter survey of the ground is I try to equip you and train you in how to make your way through this through this tangled path of Isaiah and then set you up so that you can not only learn from Isaiah, but enjoy reading the book of Isaiah and understand it. Now, remember, Nephi promised us that in the last days we would also, the Jews, he said the Jews understood the book of Isaiah because that was the manner of prophesying among the Jews. But in the last days they will also understand these things, he said. And the biggest part of the reason for that is that far wiser and better scholars than I have taken the time to explain it all for us. And we have access to so much more information than ever before in human history that we can reach out and understand what everybody has said about the book of Isaiah. So here's how I study the book of Isaiah. And if you're just listening to this podcast, maybe you don't feel like doing that. Maybe you're driving somewhere. That's fine. If you want to savor this like you would a fine rich cheesecake or, you know, maybe your, I don't know what your favorite dessert is, something super rich, uh, then you, this is the way that I would recommend studying it. I study this on my tablet. So I have my Gospel Library app open. And in the library app, I have a couple of tabs. One is to the, the Institute Manual, the Old Testament Institute Manual, that, and I'm open to the chapter that discusses whatever part of the book of Isaiah I'm reading. Secondly, I have the King James Bible open in the Gospel Library app. And then I also might have uh, the Sunday School manual open as well. That's not as important because there is less explanation that goes on. It just kind of points you in the right direction. Then I also have a web browser open, and I've talked about the website BibleHub.com several times. I have one tab open to BibleHub.com. And I will choose a translation that uh, is what is farther along the what you might call the idiomatic end of the spectrum, something that feels like very natural English. And then I also have another tab open to a website called IsaiahExplained.com, which is a website run by a member of the church named Avraham Gileadi. He's a, a Jewish convert to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ. And... He has made his own translation of the book of Isaiah. So with all these different translations, you can that none of them get it exactly right, which is kind of the hard part. All of them, they all have somewhat different takes on different words, and some of them leave some things out and take put other things in that others leave out. So the first thing I do is I will read the translation that's super idiomatic on BibleHub.com. Believe it or not, you can read a chapter in the book of Isaiah. If it's, if it's rendered in modern English, you can read it in about a minute. And that sounds really strange. It sounds impossible that that would be true. But if you scan through it, all you want to do is get the sense for what all of the words means. To me, the most important version to read is the King James translation. That's what's in our scriptures, but it's also what's quoted extensively in the Book of Mormon. So let's say you're reading the Book of Mormon, you get to the Isaiah chapters, or you want to understand Isaiah so that when you get to those chapters, you can understand them and enjoy them. That's 
that's the goal, is to understand the King James Version. But first, you have to read it in some really clear English so that you can get the point behind what's going on. Now, I will often go back and forth between the two apps, the the browser on biblehub.com and my gospel library app. I'll often go back and forth every five or six verses. And doing that, it takes about 10 minutes to read a chapter. But by the end of that time, I have understood every passage. Now, the other thing you can do on biblehub.com is if you if you tap on uh, and I, if you don't have a tablet, then I apologize. If you're just reading on, on your simple scriptures, then uh, this is going to be a little harder. But hopefully, you have some sort of computer where you can pull up this website. And if you click on the link for just one verse, and then click on the Hebrew link, then um, anytime there's a word in that verse that you want to know more about, you'll see the actual Hebrew word. You click on that, and then you click on the link that goes to the Strong's Concordance, and it will actually define all the ways that that word, that Hebrew word, can be rendered into English. So you'll get a lot of alternate ideas as to what might be going on and why so many people have translated that verse in different ways. The point of all of this is tons of, there are tons of ways to interpret what Isaiah is saying. And one framework that, that I rec- have recommended is to understand the six different antecedents, but also to understand the different ways that it can be translated. Uh, there are a lot of different frameworks that other people have recommended. So let's jump in and, and open our, our various translations and our various apps. Let's open to Isaiah chapter 22. So in this, in this chapter, what we're talking about, what God is talking about, and what Isaiah is talking about in all of these chapters is the destruction of Israel, the exile of Israel and Judah, and their eventual rest and salvation in the millennial earth. So they, the, the surface level is that Isaiah lives in the city of Jerusalem, just south of the northern kingdom of Israel, which is about to be destroyed and carried away captive by the Assyrians. But within a hundred years, the southern kingdom of Judah is also going to be carried away captive by the Babylonians. And Isaiah is, in these chapters, is going to prophesy not only of these things, but of the, the last days. I mean, he can't, he can't talk for very long about the terrible things that are coming without having his mind called away forcefully, almost, to the glorious latter days where he sees the that God reigning personally on the earth. Isaiah is constantly drawn to the, the wonder of that vision that he saw early in his ministry. So in here in chapter 22, he's talking about how Jerusalem is surrounded. Now, if you remember, uh, this, this, Isaiah actually lived through this. And so we can assume shortly after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of of Israel and carried it away. They they also destroyed a lot of Judah and, and eventually laid siege to Jerusalem, and there they were outside the walls. You'll remember the story. We've talked about it a few times. And Isaiah said to the king, the king sent for Isaiah and said, what do we do? You know, please, Hezekiah, he said, please pray to God. And they had prepared, they had fortified their city, and they had also, Hezekiah, uh, we don't know exactly who did the work, but Hezekiah commissioned a tunnel to be dug, and then a wall to be built above it, and there was a spring that was outside the walls of Jerusalem, 
and they actually brought it inside and then covered it up so nobody knew where they were getting their water from, but they had a source of water. So they were prepared for this siege, and yet uh, there were 185, well, there were at least 185,000, that's how many were killed <laughs> from one day to the next, Assyrians outside their walls. And then uh, Isaiah sent a prophecy that said, they won't fire a single arrow against you. And they woke up in the morning and 185,000 of them, as the scripture reports, were dead. So the rest of them fled, and the king, as had been prophesied, he went home and his son killed him while he, while he prayed to one of his heathen gods. So that's the surface level. Uh, This chapter is talking about how the burden of the Valley of Vision, meaning he saw a burdensome vision, and the Valley of Vision is the Valley of Jerusalem, and uh, or at least one of the one of the fulfillments of this scripture. So it talks about how this this chapter, chapter twenty two of Isaiah, talks about all of the terrible things that are going to be happening, and how. Jerusalem is preparing itself for an earthly conquest, but is not preparing itself spiritually. And so uh, they're resigned to their fate. They're thinking, I'm going to die. Even though they're working on the walls, they're working on building cisterns under the city so that they can have a supply of water. They're not repenting. And what Isaiah is saying is all God wanted from you was for you to cry unto him. He's trying to find some way to humble you and you won't listen. So, the fact that you won't repent means he can't forgive you. If you, uh, if you read there in verse 12, and, th- and I'm reading to you from a different translation now, the sovereign Lord Almighty was calling you then to weep and mourn, to shave your heads and wear sackcloth. Instead, you laughed and celebrated. You killed sheep and cattle to eat and you drank wine. You said, we might as well eat and drink. Tomorrow we'll be dead. The Sovereign Lord Almighty, this is verse 14 of chapter 22, the Sovereign Lord Almighty himself spoke to me and said, this evil will never be forgiven them as long as they live. I, the Sovereign Lord Almighty, have spoken. So God can't forgive them because they won't repent. They have esteemed this, and this is a theme that the Old Testament visits so many times. They have esteemed some external force as being more powerful than God. Do you remember the, and I'm, I'm constantly reminded of the story of Gideon. He had been warned of the Midianites, and they had this huge army that they'd sent, and they had the the element of surprise. They could have taken enough warriors to go and conquer this, this invading force, but instead, God kept telling Gideon, you've got to cut down your numbers, you've got to cut down your numbers. And finally, there were only 300 of them that went against this thousands of the Midianites, and he, the reason God gave for that was, I want you to know when you are victorious, I want no one to be able to deny that it was my power that delivered you. And this is what God is going for here. He's saying, all you needed to do is count on me. And in the short term, so that's the surface level. These, these Jerusalem, these citizens of Jerusalem are going to live through a siege where a huge army of the Assyrians, these terrible, vicious, cruel Assyrians are going to be encamped outside of their city walls. And they are going to be called upon to repent, to change themselves spiritually so that God can save them. Now, if you try just a little bit, you can find parallels for this in each of the other areas, in each of the other frameworks or the antecedents that that we've talked about. So, um, 
it's not just one, it's not only one time that Israel would be surrounded by an invading army. This, this happened many times to the nation of Israel, right? They, they were surrounded by, and most notably, they were pursued by the Egyptians when they, when they escaped from Egypt. But they were surrounded by, in different time periods, the Romans, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, the all the all of the the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, all of the empires of the ancient world at one time or another did war, made war on the Israelites, and so this was a this was a prophecy that would find fulfillment with the nation of Israel many times. What how how would we apply this to the life of Jesus? To me, it seems like every time uh, Isaiah talks about a wicked people, what he's talking about are people who will not, or a wicked, the wicked people who are the chosen people. The way we apply that to the life of Christ is to say these are people who won't recognize the Messiah when they see him. So here are people that, and what what are the Israelites in chapter twenty two? What are they not seeing? Uh, they're not seeing that if they just repented, that God would fight their battles for them. Isn't that interesting? What they want is military deliverance. And God, in the Old Testament, quite often provided that very thing. And that is what they were looking for when Christ came in his mortal ministry. They were looking for this Davidic king that had been promised in the book of Kings that would come and be the second Solomon, basically. Somebody who to whom who would lead the Israelites to a state in which they didn't have to pay tribute to anyone else. They could worship the way they wanted, and they would be a sovereign country. So what they're not seeing in this chapter is that if they just repented, God would fight their battles for them. That is not much of a stretch for us to see that same prophecy, that same situation in during the life of Jesus. So here we are in verse 22, seeing the, the citizens of Jerusalem preparing themselves for a military onslaught, and they're not recognizing that the power of God is right there with them. So to me, that's a really easy way to spot the third antecedent at work in chapter 22. The, the fourth antecedent is also not too too much of a stretch to see part of our eternal progression is being subject to the veil which is not understanding that god what power god has and we have to choose to trust it and we're, we'll get into in one of the later chapters of this lesson we'll get into the power of choice exactly what do we have choice over uh, in just a few minutes but the point is while we're under the influence of the veil, we have the power to choose and to not choose to believe in God. So we can see that he will fight our battles, or we can not see. We'll talk a little bit also about how uh, how God will make people blind, or God will, will call attention to their blindness in, in one of these chapters as well. But so it seems to me like a veil of, for, not forgetfulness, but a veil of lack of awareness has been drawn over the, the eyes of these Israelites. And that corresponds to the veil that we all live in. How does this relate to the temple? 
Well, I have to admit, this one is a, this chapter is a little more of a stretch, but there is a veil in the uh, tabernacle of Moses that separates the holy of holies or the holy, holy, holy place from the one holy place, the single holy place. Uh, so this this veil of forgetfulness or of not knowing this, the Israelites are the covenant people, and yet until they choose to repent and they they choose to place their faith in the God who will fight their battles, they can be continuously ejected from the temple, and they are not only taken out of the holy place, but out of the environs of the temple altogether and away from the altar. And the way the way we approach the state where God fights our battles or where we have ultimate faith in him and we receive from him everything that he's promised is by traveling this path that the temple outlines, which is the path of sacrifice, the path of cleansing, and then the path of holiness. Um, finally, what what does it mean for us to when we read this chapter, how does it help us right now today? So I've gone through the the six antecedents of Isaiah one by one, and I've hope and I'm hoping you've learned this process where we take each one and we consider how how can this apply in this particular chapter of Isaiah or in this or in these few verses of Isaiah. Mostly we focused on the first fourteen verses of of chapter uh, twenty two. Finally, it's pretty easy to see that if we want God to fight our battles for us, we can't be resigned to the fact that it seems like Satan's power is too strong. We, we can't just think, oh, well, I might as well enjoy myself as much as I can because there's no winning. I can't actually be happy. I can't actually escape. So I might as well give up and get what pleasure I can out of life or what pleasure I can out of sin. I And not try to repent, not try to make something better out of my life, not look forward to a better life after this one, but instead consider that this is all there is. To me, that's the deeper meaning in this in this chapter. There's a very interesting verse that, or a very interesting passage that occurs later on in chapter 22, and that's where Isaiah is talking about, he's, he's called to go to the one of the high priests of the king, and say, you're going to be replaced. And this replacement, Eliakim, is going to be a nail in a sure place. And that's an interesting passage. And it's very easily seen how uh, Jesus Christ is a nail in a sure place. Now, not only does that have reference to Jesus Christ, you notice that all of the all of the relatives of Eliakim, they're, they're hung upon this nail, it's driven into a sure place as a, as, a, as a support that can be counted on. But also it has reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. So a nail in a sure place was the, the, the pattern that the Romans had of not only nailing the hands, but also nailing the wrists so that uh, the, the one being executed wouldn't die prematurely or have their hands torn apart by a single nail. Very fascinating that the, the method of Christ's execution would would be presaged by Isaiah in this way. So you can see that sometimes you don't have to work too hard to find a way to fit one of the antecedents in and gain more insight from whatever chapter or verse you happen to be looking at in Isaiah. Chapter 23 is skipped in the Sunday school lesson, but it talks about the, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, which are Phoenician cities. 
So let's just say you wanted to, as a little bit of extra credit, apply this to one of the antecedents. You might think, okay, what did Tyre and Sidon, what did they represent to the children of Israel? Well, they were one of these surrounding nations that constantly, that in fact, the Phoenicians were allies of the Israelites. So it wasn't that they were constantly doing battle with them, but they were constantly serving as a temptation to worship other gods, to follow the ways of the world. Now, these were, the Phoenicians were merchants, and so they brought trade goods from all over the world. They were sailors into Israel. They represented wealth, and they represented all of the the distractions from spiritual things that we might find. So it's pretty easy to figure out how that fits in. Uh, you can fit that into the life of Jesus. How did the how did the Jews at the time of Jesus, how were they distracted? You can fit that into your own eternal progression. And without too much work, you can find out where that fits in the temple and and you can fit you can easily find out what the distractions are for you in your daily life. Chapter 24. Now this chapter has a couple of passages that I really enjoy. Um, the first one I'll draw to your attention, verse six, verses six through nine. Now, this this reminded me of one of my favorite Christmas songs, which is "Joy to the World." But you you may remember, in one of the verses of "Joy to the World," it says, "He'll come and make the blessings flow, far as the curse was found." And I always wondered as a kid, I always thought, "What does that mean? What curse is he talking about? What curse was found?" It is only as I grew up and I studied started studying the Old Testament that I realized the curse is when God said to Adam, I will curse the ground for thy sake. So here, here in verse 6, uh, Isaiah says, Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men left. Well, obviously the curse could be the fall of Adam, but it could also be some other curse. God has cursed the Israelites several times since they left Egypt. He said to them that uh, you've, if you keep worshiping these other gods, or if you don't clean, cleanse the land of all these other people that will tempt you in ways that you shouldn't be tempted because you can't resist it, then you will forfeit the greater blessings you could have. You'll be immune to my protection, and you will have given up the the right to have me come and fight your battles, as I promised to do. So that is also one of the curses. So right right there, I've given you two contexts. Those, that, those are the second and the fourth antecedents. Our eternal progression is the fall of Adam, and the second antecedent is these curses that the, the, na- the nation of Israel has earned from God for being idolatrous at different times. So... Uh, anyway, next time you sing Joy to the World and you sing he'll, he'll Come and Make the Blessings Flow Far as the Curse Was Found, you can realize that has two different fulfillments. Now, one of the key verses in this chapter is where, in verse 22, when it says they shall be gathered together, as it's talking about the kings of the earth and how those who are prideful will be brought low. And the reason we're going through this, by the way, in such an episodic form, we're just jumping, is because that's what Isaiah does. He kind of starts one, each paragraph is almost a separate uh, prophecy, uh, and some of them are self-contained. So sometimes the chapter has a thread running all the way through it, and sometimes these chapters, the end of one chapter has more to do with the beginning of the next chapter than it does with what came before it in that same chapter. So 
we're taking these more as passages than as chapters. And if each passage has a set of ways that we can interpret it, then we're just looking at them one by one. So here we are in verse 24. In the final, in the final passage, he's talking about these kings of the earth being brought low, and they're put in prison. So kings reduced from their pride, prideful place. And again, we have this we have this idea of people who have trusted in earthly powers. Now, in the last chapter, it was Jews in, in Jerusalem who were on the receiving end of this earthly power of an invading army. But now what we have is uh, it's flipped around, and it's the invading kings. It's these kings that have been fighting against Israel, and they're being brought low. And then uh, it says in verse 22, They shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days shall they be visited. Now, just as a side note, um, Latter-day Saints quite often read these verses and say, uh, after, after many days they shall be visited, we think, uh, we automatically think, okay, Jesus Christ was called, and in the 138th section, we learn about how Jesus went and visited the spirits in prison. But, and it's really interesting because I actually pulled up the translation, the Hebrew, the original Hebrew on BibleHub.com. I pulled up the Hebrew of this word, and it can mean punished. So it can, a lot of translations don't have the word visited in there. They have, after many days they shall be punished, or their punishment shall come. So visited in the sense of visited with punishment is how often it's translated. So I thought, oh, we're missing the point. We're reading this as if... Um, as if Jesus is going to go visit these people. But really what it means is, after many days, then their punishment will come. They'll be visited with punishment. But then after, but I, I dug a little deeper, and the Hebrew word actually has both meanings. It can be ministered to, but it can also be punished, which is so interesting that that one word would have both meanings. So the truth is, depending, and it, it may have been, uh, intentional on the part of Isaiah, depending on which of the antecedents you want to apply, that depends on which sense of the word visited or punished you're going to get. So after many days, what happens to our, our pride? It, once, once it's removed, once we're humbled, once the, the fact that we can't count on the arm of flesh, we can't trust in the arm of flesh, becomes clear to us, and God teaches us that lesson and humbles us, what happens to those things we took pride in? They're, after many days, they're generally brought low. But also, the things that we're humbled for, as uh, Ether 12, 27 promises us, is that we these weak things will become strong. Now, obviously, in the, in the ministry of Jesus Christ, this has a fulfillment, which is that Jesus will go into the spirit world and visit the spirits that were in prison. So in the history of the nation of Israel, right, in the prophecy that Isaiah is making, he's saying there will come a day when Israel will be redeemed from these foreign kings that have oppressed it for all of its history and all of these powers, God will become the government. And all of these powers that have surrounded Israel for so long will be deprived of their earthly power. And so they'll be gathered together as prisoners are. And it might take a long time, but eventually they'll be visited with their punishment. And you can see that, that that very idea continues in verse 23. Then the moon shall be confounded, the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. 
and before his ancients gloriously. In other words, God will be the government on the earth. So you can see just in these two verses, well, really three verses, the last three verses of chapter 24, that there are several ways we can interpret those. And it's kind of fun to realize, oh, all you have to do is say, what context is Isaiah talking in? And then try to figure out what it might mean in that context. And you can almost always find a meaning for it. And some people listening to this from outside of an LDS perspective or a a perspective of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they might come in and say, this is something that you're making up. Uh, Just the fact that you can find an application doesn't mean it was intended by Isaiah. Well, that's true. We don't have any guarantees that this is what it means. These are meanings that we're trying to find. And as I as I mentioned in uh, a lesson several, probably three or four months ago, what I said was what we're not trying, what we're doing is not trying to find the definitive answers when we study the scriptures. We're trying to find interesting questions, or at least that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to figure out what it is I want to learn from the scriptures. And I don't always know that this is what God meant. But the fact that he put the question in my head, the fact that he said, could it, could it mean this? And gave me that thought means it's something worth thinking about. In my opinion, the book of, this is the finding interesting questions is what studying the book of Isaiah is all about. When you find, and, and it might be you try to apply one of the antecedents, it doesn't really seem to fit, and you think this isn't very profitable for me to think about. But there'll be other times when you think, gosh, could this be exactly what Isaiah meant? Because it seems to fit in so many different ways, and it's perfect for me right now in this moment. That's an interesting question. It's not a definitive answer. You'll never know for sure, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, the scriptures are designed to do that exact thing, which is to get you to wonder, is God active in my life? And in what way is the power of God manifest? How can I choose to, to give it more influence over what happens to me? In other words, how can I stop trusting in the arm of flesh? How can I avoid doing what these people in Jerusalem in chapter 22 are doing, which is building up their outer walls, their defenses against an army that is irresistible, rather than repenting in sackcloth and ashes and counting on God to fight their battles. So in what ways can I avoid making that mistake? That is what Isaiah trains us to do. Now, chapter 25 is largely a millennial prophecy. So there is very little of the surface level, Isaiah's time. He's saying in Mount Zion, in the, in the last days, generally when Isaiah talks about Mount Zion, he's saying when God restores the earth to its millennial glory or its, its Eden-like state. And I don't know if you remember, but in the, uh, we talked about the, when we did our special episode on the tabernacle, we talked about the decorations inside and they were they were all, and especially in the temple of Solomon, the decorations inside were scenes from the Garden of Eden. So the holy place, the place where most of the priests could go in, where this table of shewbread was and the menorah was, it was seen as a return to the original creation. God had created the perfect earth, and here we are in the holy place. It's a, it's a, it's a state of being where... God reigns on the earth, and we're in his presence. And even that is not as holy as the holiest of holies, or the holiest place. And 
so um, these are reminiscent. The outer court is reminiscent of the world we live in now, or a telestial, what you might call a telestial existence. And the holy place is a terrestrial existence. They correspond to the three kingdoms of glory, and the and the holy of holies is corresponds to the celestial kingdom or where God Himself lives. And the uh, so here's here's Isaiah talking about how the world will be brought to its terrestrial glory again, the glory that we already knew. So right away we can see that there's a tie-in with our temple antecedent, but it's also the the terrestrial kingdom in the plan of salvation. And every time he talks about the fact that God will rule personally, we're talking about the post-mortal ministry of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So these are, you know, several antecedents being brought in at once, all of them right at once. Um, So let's talk about the feast that God is going to hold for the, those, descendants of the house of Israel in the latter days. In, the, in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts, this is verse six, verses 6 through 9, in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And then he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. So let's read another version of that and see, let's get a little bit more insight into what that might mean. And actually at this point, I'm going to use the Gileadi translation from IsaiahExplained.com. So chapter 25, verse 6, In this mountain will Jehovah of hosts prepare a sumptuous feast for all peoples, a feast of leavened cakes. Now what's the difference between a leavened cake and an unleavened cake? A leavened cake is what we would know as cake. It is actually dough that has been allowed to rise with yeast in it, as opposed to what the what the Israelites ate in the Passover, which was bread that they didn't have time to allow it to rise. So they would have understood this because it's leavened cakes. They would have understood this as the opposite of the Passover. We don't have to eat it in a hurry. Succulent and delectable. A feast of leavened cakes, succulent and delectable, of matured wines well refined. In this mountain will he destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the shroud that shrouds all nations by abolishing death forever. My Lord Jehovah will wipe away the tears from all faces. Now this is such a beautiful image, but it's also very powerful because it talks about how they're going to have a feast and this feast has, it's the opposite of everything that represented fleeing out from the nations of Egypt. In other words, they were they were in such a hurry to leave, they couldn't let their bread rise. They, there was no way they could have a mature wine well refined. What they had to do was eat and drink, standing up with their shoes on their feet. And this is the exact opposite, meaning God controls this country. There is no foreign invader. Not only will God fight your battles, but all the battles are over. So, so Isaiah is talking about this blessed time when there is nothing to worry about. In fact, all mourning has ceased. Every tear that you might shed, God is there personally to wipe it away from your face. That it, It's a tender image of a father comforting his children, but not only comforting his children, taking away all of the causes that might cause them to suffer. And he's saying, what he's saying is he's giving them a lot of reasons to believe, not just a statement that God will one day 
save you. He's giving them a lot of reasons to believe how he would do that and why he would do that and saying, this is the, this is the way we're going to live one day. God is going to actually give us this feast where we, instead of having to every year relive this terrible flight that we had out of slavery, we're going to have the exact opposite where we have all the time in the world to prepare cakes with leaven in them and, and mature wine well-refined. And it's going to be succulent and delectable. No one will be crying that day because God is wiping the tears from our face. Now, if you try, you can put this into every single one of the six antecedents. You can say, uh, this is what Jesus Christ did to the people that he healed. You could say, when we are in the celestial kingdom or in the, even in the millennial day, this is what we'll feel like. You can say, when we progress through the different stages of the temple experience, this is what the Spirit feels like. You can also say that God, this is what God does for me on a daily basis when I truly make it a point in my scripture study, in my prayer to connect with him, then this is how he makes me feel. But on the surface level, Isaiah is actually talking about the latter days, and he's saying there will come a time when the veil over the earth, and this is, the, you might remember this again from a hymn, the veil over the, over the earth is beginning to burst. This is from the Spirit of God. Isaiah is bringing several things to mind all at once. Just, and that's just three verses. You can understand why we're doing sort of a helicopter survey of the forest beneath and why it might be profitable for you to walk through each of these verses individually and say, I'm going to spend, today I'm going to spend an hour on one chapter in my reading of the Book of Mormon or my reading of the Bible because there's so much here to get that you can't possibly cover, even though we only have a few chapters to cover. We can't even get to all of the verses in these chapters. Well, the next chapter we're going to cover is actually, we're going to skip chapter 26. I, I wish we could cover it, but we don't, we're running out of time. But uh, I, I recommend it to you. There is another interesting ambiguity in the translation, where some translations have, in verse 19, Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. So it seems to be God telling the people, and in, in fact, it's Isaiah directly switching what my means. A couple of verses before that, when he says, we have been with child, we have been with pain, he's saying we, meaning the Israelites. That's verse 18. Then verse 19, he immediately says, my dead body, with my dead body shall they arise. So my now means God. This is a perfect example of how the antecedents switch without being expressly mentioned in the book of Isaiah. This is why I came up with the six antecedents of Isaiah, because sometimes you don't know what these antecedents are, these pronouns are referring to. So that's why you need to be able to, to have some ready-made antecedents you can swap in and out as the situation seems to call for. But my point is that, that some translations have, together with my dead body shall they arise. And some translations take that out altogether and say, um, their dead bodies shall arise. The meaning is totally different. So um, I invite you to check out the different translations that are available on BibleHub.com. This is Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, and see what you think. So this is the translation we use, the, the King James Version has, together with my dead body. And that's a perfectly valid translation. It's also a perfectly valid translation not to have that in there. One of them would seem to reinforce the idea that Jesus Christ will die and be resurrected, and Jesus Christ is Jehovah of the Old Testament. And the other translation would tend not to reinforce that idea. So... 
uh, it's interesting that they're both perfectly valid translations. It's clear to see why Joseph Smith had such a hard time choosing between the various beliefs of his day because he couldn't he couldn't reconcile everything that everyone was saying by recourse to the Bible. Okay, uh, but chapter 27 is... Now, the reason I wanted to get to this, and, and this isn't covered in the lesson, but it's very important because you'll remember in chapter 5 we covered last time in lesson 36. We covered chapter 5 where God is angry with his vineyard because he watered his vineyard, he did everything to care for his vineyard, and all he wanted was some fruit out of his vineyard, and instead what he got was wild brambles and, and uh, terrible plants. Now we're going to read in the Gileadi translation. Again, that's isaiahexplained.com. This is chapter 27. Verse 2, In that day sing of the earth as of a delightful vineyard of which I, Jehovah, am keeper. I water it constantly, watch over it night and day, lest anything be amiss. I have no more anger toward her. Should briars and thorns come up, I will ruthlessly attack them and altogether set them ablaze. So here he's going to attack the briars and thorns. But... Should they take a hold of me for a refuge and make peace with me, they shall be reconciled to me. For in days to come, when Jacob takes root and Israel bursts into blossom, the face of the earth shall fill with fruit. What I find interesting in this translation is that the briars themselves can be either burned or fruitful. To me, this is totally fascinating because... In typical parallel style, the the briars are called both Jacob and Israel, and that when that when you see that in the scriptures and especially in Isaiah, using the six antecedents, you can see this refers to me. When when Isaiah is talking about the nation of Israel, not only is he figuratively referring to me, but he's literally referring to me. I have been adopted into the family of Abraham, but I probably you know you and I were very likely literal descendants of Abraham. I mean, the as Jesus said, God is capable of raising from these stones descendants of Abraham. Just about everyone is descended from Abraham. But the, the fascinating part of this is that, so we are these briars, or we can be the fruit of the vineyard. So in the previous chapter, the, this, this image has now changed. In the previous chapter, we were the unrighteous vineyard, but we let these briars come in. But in this chapter, the briars can be either attacked by God or nourished by God. He can either burn them up or he can forgive them, love them, water them, tend them, and then they can fill the earth with fruit. I just find it so amazing. In other words, we get to choose whether we're briars or not. Even though we're already briars, we get to choose whether we stay briars or whether we get to bear wonderful fruit in the vineyard. We won't spend a lot of more time in chapter 27, except to say that this is where Isaiah begins to talk about the exile, that not only the northern kingdom, but the southern kingdom is going to have to go through. So we can see very clearly that they, the Israelites and the, the uh, Judeans, they all, they all knew that this was coming. It was a very familiar idea to them. And now we're going to find out what their reaction was. So in chapter 28, it's interesting, Isaiah is talking, he, he talks about the drunkards of Ephraim. Verse 1, Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty 
is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Now, the fat valleys are abundant agricultural lands, meaning they have everything that the earth can provide. They have all the abundance that God has given them, and yet they are the crown of pride, meaning that they have put themselves above their fellow men and above the need for God. So this is Isaiah saying, Israel will be destroyed. The northern kingdom is going to be conquered by the Assyrians because, and then he starts outlining all of the causes. Now, what does this mean for you and me? It means the interpretation for you and me is as we fall away from is we allow pride to overcome us, or if we literally are drunkards. But if um, if we believe that we can take leave of our senses, that we can drop our responsibilities, that we can drop judgment. Now, in verse 7, he also talks about other people who are drinking, the prophets and the priests. So if we forget that we have duties to God to be holy and to obey the commandments, then... The message to us is the same as the message to the northern kingdom of Israel, which is that God is going to conquer you. Now, the interesting, the the most significant verse in chapter 28 is a little bit later on. He talks about the, the cornerstone that will be laid. And leading up to this, he says, hear, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with hell, are we at agreement? When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. So these men have, these sinners, they've made an agreement with death, as they call it. Or in other words, they have a secret combination. They're going to cover each other. They're, they say, well, we're the wicked ones, so we don't have to worry about any of the consequences of our acts. We're, we're, we have ourselves covered. And when the day of reckoning arrives, there actually are no consequences for us. Once again, this has a, a fulfillment within our own lives. How many times do we think we are above the consequences that other people have to suffer? I'm better than them in some way. Therefore, I don't have to worry about keeping the laws of God that they have to keep. Uh, every, I think everybody does this to some extent. Uh, the, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, we're in Isaiah 28, verse 16. A stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Now, Paul used this same image in the book of Ephesians when he talked about the church being a building that was fitly framed together on the foundation of prophets and apostles with Jesus Christ himself being the head cornerstone. Paul was making an obvious reference to Isaiah, but Paul's interpretation was that this precious cornerstone was referring to Christ. This is, for Christians, this is an obvious interpretation. This is the third antecedent found in this verse. But I also like to give you what the Jewish interpretation is so that you can understand that uh, Isaiah was talking to people who didn't know about Christ yet. What did, what did they think that he meant? And the surface interpretation is that Isaiah was making uh, a metaphor here. He was talking about justice itself. He was saying God is going to set a foundation. The, the whole foundation of God is that there is justice for everyone. Now, Jesus Christ 
made justice possible and he made mercy possible. So this this is a perfect image for him. It is a perfect metaphor for him. But underneath that is God is Isaiah just saying, God believes in justice and God will establish his justice. You can think that you're going to flee from it. You can think that you can make deals around it. But eventually God just God's justice catches up with you. Uh, as he says in verse 18, your covenant with death shall be disannulled. Your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through. Then ye shall be trodden down by it. In other words, you can't escape just because you say you will. So uh, that's that's chapter 28. In chapter 29, it's very. This is a very significant chapter for Latter Day Saints because in uh, first of all, because in third or second Nephi chapter 27, this chapter is extensively quoted and significantly. There's an added verse there. So it talks about how at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 29, it talks about how the nations that are round about Israel will be brought down and Israel itself will speak as out of the dust. But the this image of, of a nation or a prophet or a people speaking out of the dust has so much more significance in the context of the the Nephites because they literally speak to well not literally but figuratively they speak to us out of the dust it's a very potent image because the plates that their records were written on were pulled out of the ground but also because in uh, in thir- in second Nephi 27 one of these images the, the added verse adds a chiasmus creates a chiasmus that doesn't exist in Isaiah. So the idea that Joseph Smith composed this chapter, composed chapter 27, and for some reason added a, an Isaiah-like verse to his quotation of Isaiah that made it more Hebraic, that gave it an added level of poetry, is a little bit difficult to deal with. And a critic of the Book of Mormon, there there are some things that true believing Mormons have to deal with when critics of the Book of Mormon speak. They can say, well, you know, you don't have any historical evidence, or they can point to other things. But on the other side, there are also things that critics of the Book of Mormon have to deal with. And this particular chapter is one of them, the chapter where it is quoted in the Book of Mormon, because there is an added verse that sounds like it comes from Isaiah, and in fact seems even to be more Isaiah-like than the Isaiah chapter that we have in the Old Testament. Very fascinating. Uh, And so Jerusalem is, in this chapter, Jerusalem is threatened, surrounded, but then it's saved. And this is the the retelling of the story that we've seen many times, the, um, when the Assyrians arrive and they're, and, and Isaiah prophesies that they won't, won't conquer. But it's also, uh, a number of prophecies that seem to be talking about Joseph Smith in the future. They're saying um, Joseph Smith will be, well, obviously doesn't use the words Joseph Smith, but he says um, a book will be delivered to someone who's learned, but the book is sealed. And he says, well, I can't re- read a sealed book. That's this chapter. So this is a significant chapter for us. Also, God the Father quoted this chapter when he was talking to Joseph Smith, he said, their hearts, they, they, with their mouths, they draw close to me, but with their hearts, they're far from me. 
Though that is a quote from Isaiah. And again, this is the chapter where uh, Isaiah says, God shall in that day begin to do a marvelous work and a wonder. And the marvelous work isn't what we think. When we use the word marvelous, it means only good. But marvelous can mean, and again, terrible also doesn't always mean bad. In, in the times when the King James Version was translated, it just means something that really opens your eyes. So marvelous could mean, wow, I marvel at it and it really hurts, or it's, uh, it's a wonderful, terrific, terrible thing. And the righteous will obviously love it, and the wicked not so much. In verse 14 of chapter 29, Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. So some people won't take this as being so marvelous. The wisdom of somebody perishing is not going to be a pleasant day for that person. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us and who knoweth us? So everything is going to be revealed, and justice shall come to everyone. Then it talks about some of the blessings that will come. The deaf shall the deaf hear the words of the book, the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness, the meek shall increase their joy in the Lord. So God will make his power known and justice will reign and there will also be wonderful surprises. So chapter 29, very significant chapter. And if you are willing to put in the work, you're willing to read this in a couple of different translations, it's also very clear. Chapter, let's go into the final chapter of our lesson, chapter 30. Now this this has a, an, a something that was intended by Isaiah to be a metaphor, but it also has a literal fulfillment. So it starts out talking about how Israel has sent ambassadors to Egypt to seek after some alliance. And he say, and God is saying, or Isaiah is saying, thus saith the Lord, why are you going to Egypt for help? Don't you know that Egypt is the biggest metaphor you could ever trip over? You escaped there, you were slaves there, and now you're going back there. Egypt is famous for not getting things done. And in fact, um, he, God even gives Egypt a nickname in, in verse 7 of chapter 30. The Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this, their strength is to sit still. And uh, some translations have it as, you know, they're, str- they're the people of sitting still. So the God is saying, you've put your trust once again in the biggest arm of flesh there ever was, which is the nation of Egypt. They are such a representation of worldly pride and power that I have used them that way for literally hundreds of years now. And have you not learned your lesson? So there are so many parallels to our lives in this, uh, but it doesn't stop there. And I, I want to read you now, I'm going to read to you from the Good News translation, the, the verses that follow. So, God told me to write down, this is what uh, Isaiah writes, God told me to write down in a book what the people are like, so that there would be a permanent record of how evil they are. That's verse 8 of chapter 30. They are always rebelling against God, always lying, always refusing to listen to the Lord's teachings. They tell the prophets to keep quiet. They say, 
Don't talk to us about what's right. Tell us what we want to hear. Let us keep our illusions. Get out of our way and stop blocking our path. We don't want to hear about your holy God of Israel. And at the beginning of the episode, I promised we'd talk about two things, choice and blindness. So the choice was when we talked about the brambles. We get to choose whether we're brambles or fruitful vines. And that's really amazing because we can change our very nature or Christ can change our very nature through our choice. And here it's talking about how so many people in the world of at the time of Isaiah, they know it's a prophet, but they tell the prophet, don't be a prophet. And uh, obviously the chapter goes on to talk a lot more about what happens to people who have this attitude. Um, and they don't, the spoiler alert, it doesn't turn out too well for them. But the, and in fact, God's, that's not the ending because God says at the end, eventually I will save you and I will protect you. But that's because you will change. Your nature will change. You will eventually let me into your hearts and I will change them. You will go from being brambles to being fruitful vines and I'll restore you and protect you. And Assyria, the nation of Assyria, which we can put in quotes, the Assyria of whatever your life is in that day will be destroyed. So God is going to take each of us. If we if we use the second, or I'm sorry, the fourth antecedent, God is going to take each of us and change us. But if we use the sixth antecedent, in every day we're going to run into some advice, let's say, some message from God where he tries to humble us, some weakness that he shows us. And our first attitude is going to be, hey, don't tell me about those things that are weak. Tell me what I want to hear. Let me keep my illusions. Uh, And reading these verses in the King James Version, it's a little more poetic. This is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to seers, see not, and to prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. So we're constantly, you and I are constantly telling the world, give, a, give me something smooth, speak unto me smooth things rather than having the prophets of God point out to us our weaknesses. How many times have you seen in the news or on social media or heard from people after there's a a general conference or a letter from the first presidency or even a press release? The prophet shouldn't speak about that. I don't want to hear that from the church leaders or I don't want to hear this from my local church leaders. Or I don't want to hear this from life. I don't want life to show me that I'm weak in some way, that I'm not obeying the commandments. These are, these are the kinds of messages we can learn from Isaiah if we're willing to do the work. So if we're willing to maybe read it more than once, maybe read each chapter in a couple of different translations so that we can really understand the point rather than just saying that we got through those chapters, we can learn this kind of thing and realize hey, I can see myself in the ancient people of Israel and I can recognize that I have the same attitude, even though they were so awful and so idolatrous. Really, when it comes down to it, I'm also saying to the prophets, don't don't prophesy right things, but speak unto me smooth things and prophesy deceits. Well, 
I'm very grateful that I get to learn and work a little harder than I normally would on the book of Isaiah because it's given me a little bit of more insight into how I'm looking at life and saying I don't want to see my weaknesses and hopefully if I do that I can humble myself and have those some of those things become a little stronger. I pray that you'll all be able to do the same and I pray that Isaiah will help you to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.